Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Can you then impute a sinful deed to babes who on their mother's bosoms bleed? Was then more vice in fallen Lisbon found than Paris, where voluptuous joys abound? Was less debauchery to London known, where opulence luxurious holds the throne? That is, uh, I think, a, a rather good English translation of uh, Voltaire's poem on the Lisbon disaster, which uh, he wrote in December 1755 one month after an earthquake on the 1st of November, which was All Saints Day, had levelled Lisbon, um, reducing about 85% of the city to ruins, killing perhaps some 50,000 people. And Voltaire would return to the same question of how was it that such a disaster could happen? Uh, Were the philosophical explanations for why a good God could have permitted it to happen, were they justifiable. Um, in an even more famous work, Condide, which he, he published uh, four years after that in 1759. Um, and one of the reasons, Dominic, why the Lisbon earthquake, which we will come to, um, was so upsetting for people, not just in Portugal, but across the whole of Europe, was that Lisbon at that point was a famously beautiful and opulent capital, because this country that at the end of our previous episode, we had left uh, as a kingdom that had been absorbed into the broader fabric of the Kingdom of Spain, by the middle of the 18th century had not only regained its independence, but had really regained quite a lot of its mojo. It was importing vast quantities of gold, of diamonds, um, and it seemed that Portugal was back. So before we come to the the great earthquake of Lisbon, we should yeah. we should go back and look at how it is that Portugal manages to kind of re-emerge as, as an independent state. So, Tom, yes, we ended the last episode with you very tantalizingly promising us the First World War, uh, by which I don't imagine you mean the real First World War. You mean a previous uh, First World War. The First World War is the Fourth World War. This so, is the proper First good. World War. But before we get into the First World War, let's just quickly set the scene. For, um, because Portugal, in our previous episode, we talked about the golden age of exploration and uh, discovery and so on, Vasco da Gama and whatnot. And we ended, um, as you say, in 1580, um, Portugal has been taken over by uh, Philip II, uh, the King of Spain, very famous as the architect of the Armada. But Tom... Uh, a man on t- a Portuguese listener to the rest is history called Pedro Geraldes from Porto has alerted me to something that we in Britain should be ashamed about. Do you know this? Ashamed? Ashamed. What? I know, ashamed. In 1589, the year after the Spanish Armada, uh, Elizabeth I actually sent an expedition, an armada of her own, to Portugal to rescue the Portuguese from their Hispanic overlords. And it was led by the Earl of Essex, obviously great friend of uh, Elizabeth I, and Sir Francis Drake, great bowls enthusiast. So led by two such lads, how could it possibly have gone wrong, Dominic? Well, it went disastrously wrong, Tom. They took 20,000 men. Uh, they all the, Everything went wrong, the rendezvous. They turned up. There wasn't an uprising as they thought there would be. So basically, they got distracted, and they did that classic kind of crusader-style thing of sacking some Portuguese towns themselves. Right. Just sort of making a nuisance of themselves and annoying the locals. So they'd been sent to rescue the Portuguese and then they turn on the Portuguese because they don't know what else to do. And then they just and then they went home. And there are lots of people who've been waiting for them very excitedly, you know, sort of Portuguese patriots. And Francis Drake and the Earl of Essex completely let them down. They were waiting, I think, in a place called Peniche. And ever since, I'm told by Pedro Geraldes, and I looked it up and it's definitely true, the expression in Portuguese, amigos de Peniche, friends from Peniche means a traitor, a turncoat, a false friend, people who let you down. And that's us. 
I, I don't think that this is the kind of detail that we should be including in this podcast. Well, why do you hate England, Dominic? <laughs> yeah, um, I woke. That is woke tosh. That is woke tosh. I think we should move straight on from that. Yes. Well, the English will redeem themselves later in this podcast. I promise. The English will redeem themselves, and the true villains, if you're looking through Portuguese lenses, uh, will yeah. prove to be not the English, and actually not even the the Spanish, but the Dutch. The Dutch are absolute dogs in this podcast. <laughs> absolute dogs. Very poorly behaved. So the First World War um, is basically, it's the Dutch who are capitalist, a maritime power as the Portuguese had been, very, very interested in um, taking over control of the spice trade. Um, yep. And they recognize that Portugal, having been absorbed into this kind of broader Spanish kingdom, is is much less autonomous and therefore much less able to defend its uh, trade links and its colonies. And so they move in. Uh, and, and as I say, the focus is really spice. Uh, and so the mm. other name for this is it's called the Dutch-Portuguese War, but it's also known as the Spice War. But I think you can properly say this is the first world war in the sense that this is a war that spans the entire globe. So it it basically, it's a war fought over all the Portuguese colonies from Brazil um, Angola, the East Indies, uh, Malaysia. Uh, so an, an incredible conflict. And it, it rumbles on for the first six decades of the 17th century. Unbelievably long, isn't it? I mean, 60 years. And basically the Spanish, they don't pull their weight. And so this fuels a kind of escalating sense of, of resentment in Portugal yeah. that, um, that also that, that then combines with a sense that the, the Spanish economy and the Spanish state is, is really facing trouble. And so you start to get this kind of mood of insurrection in Portugal um, by the 1630s. Yeah. So um, I suppose if Portugal had been had been autonomous, completely autonomous, uh, maybe some sort of alliance with England is traditional. I mean, despite the Peniche business. And I think we would have done the right thing. I think, well, let's, what, taken over Portugal's colonists for ourselves? No, we'd have stepped in and stood by our ally and fought off the Dutch. Maybe we would. I mean... The Spanish, I mean, it's not sort of tyranny under the Spanish, is it? Because as we said in the last podcast, Portugal maintains its own institutions. It's it's a union of the crowns rather than a union of of countries. But I think you're definitely right that by the mid-17th century, a lot of Portuguese just think this union with Spain is is no good. We want to be able, you know, they're not helping us to do. And actually, we've been dragged into this war with the Dutch because of the association with Spain. So let's let's kick out the Spanish. There's a new Spanish king called Felipe IV who basically wants to, you know, it's the age of absolutism and he wants to cement his power over Portugal. And, and he's got a kind of insane long chin, hasn't he? <laughs> he does. Yeah. Um, so the, the Portuguese elite have had enough. They launch an uprising on the 1st of December, 1640. There's a load of them called the 40 conspirators and they kill King Philip's Secretary of State, and they imprison his cousin, and they they launch this revolution and and this war that basically lasts twenty eight years. And actually, the the English stay out for most of it. Well, because the Portuguese are, are trying to get an alliance with France, yeah, which I think is very poor behaviour. <laughs> yes, because France is is by far, you know, is by is absolutely the, the preponderant power in Europe at, at this yeah. time. Um, so the Portuguese hope that they can they can have an alliance with uh, with with France, and the person they want to marry off is um, the Premier Duke of Portugal, as was uh, John of Braganza, uh, but he is an heir of of Manuel the um, First, and so he's a kind of living link with the great days of of the Portuguese Empire, um, and so he's persuaded to become king. Yeah. Um, and actually, a, a kind of fascinating churn behind this. We talked about um, Sebastian dying and, and vanishing in uh, in North Africa and this sense that um, a kind of messianic nationalism is flaming through Portugal. This dream that Sebastian will come back. He doesn't. But uh, John of Braganza does. And so or Jao yeah. Braganza. And so he he becomes uh, he becomes the new king. But of course, the great thing about him for uh, Anglo-Saxon, for English listeners, is um, his daughter marries Charles II, the Merry Monarch. So in 1660, in England and Scotland, Charles II is restored. And then the the English do get involved. Um, and we'll come to that in a second. But obviously, uh, Catherine of Braganza, I mean, she's 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 not the best treated wife, I think it's fair to say. In, uh, <laughs> no, no, she's in not English royal history. She's famous because she, I don't think it's true that she introduces tea 
to England because Samuel Pepys certainly was drinking tea before she pitched up. But she definitely popularizes, you know, she's a great tea drinker. Obviously, the Portuguese would be very interested in tea because of their links with the spice trade and all that sort of business. And she's keen on porcelain and cotton and other kind of innovations. So she's a sort of trendsetter. But here's the thing about Catherine of Braganza, Tom. Do you know what connects Catherine of Braganza and Donald J. Trump, former president of the United States? No. If I, if I give you another clue and something that will delight you, they have this in common with Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, another subject I know you're very interested in. I, I have no idea. So Peter Parker, as our listeners will know, comes from Queens in New York. Uh, Queens is supposedly named after Catherine of Braganza. Uh, it was established in 1683 when she was the queen. Wow. And... In 1983, Tom, the Portuguese-American Friends of Queen Catherine wanted to set up a statue of Catherine of Braganza in Queens to celebrate mm -hmm. their, their Portuguese heritage. And they enlisted the support of top, absolute top businessman, top entrepreneur, somebody who knows more about business, statues, and Portuguese history than almost anybody. And, and that man was the future president, Donald Trump. And um, it will amaze you, Tom, to hear that uh, after his involvement, the statue was never built. Oh, why was that? Well, actually, it turned out that um, lots of um, local activists said Catherine of Braganza and the Portuguese were very involved in the slave trade. Well, that's indisputably and true. It is indisputably true. And you shouldn't put up this statue. So it never was put up. So for wow. people who were very keen on Mr. Trump's wall, this was a preview of what was to follow. Right. OK. I, I think those connections are slightly tenuous, but... No, no, no. Those are excellent connections. Those are fascinating connections. So anyway, Charles II sends an expedition to help his wife wife's family and they comport themselves absolutely splendidly they're all cromwellian soldiers aren't they yeah they're they're part of the new model army that were left over from from the previous regime yeah he sends them out and uh do you know what um Zhao's chief minister the count of castrol mill said about them did he praise them to the skies he said the english have done more than can be expected of them and i believe there are no soldiers in the world like them well that's splendid stuff so the stain of 1589 is, is wiped away. And the alliance was was polished up and, and blazed anew. And um, and also a, another tremendous symbol of um, Anglo-Portuguese amity, she, as part of her dowry, she gives um, England what will become the city of Bombay. So Mumbai. That's very impressive. That's I didn't know that, Tom. Yeah. And so... Um, good, for, good for Catherine of Braganza. And, and so what you have there is a sense of um, an alliance between England, you know, the old alliance between England and Portugal, but is now starting to have global ramifications because it's yeah. shortly after this uh, Anglo-Portuguese um, alliance has been refurbished that um, essentially the First World War, a.k.a. the uh, the Spice War, the Dutch-Portuguese War, comes to an end. And Portugal has to give up quite a lot of its colonies, so it has to, loses the Cape of Good Hope. So that's, you know, hence the... That's why you get Boers in South Africa yeah. rather than Portuguese settlers. Um, Malacca, you know, this great city that um, the Portuguese had won uh, back in the early 16th century. Um, Ceylon, so Sri Lanka as, as is now, uh, the Malabar coast. So all that goes to the Dutch. But mm -hmm. the Portuguese are able to keep, crucially, they're able to keep Macau, which remains a, a long-term colony, Goa, yep. Angola, and the jewel in the Portuguese crown, Brazil. Yes. So Brazil is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because Brazil is, um, as it were, colonized later than some other Latin American countries. Uh, and, and, and much of it is, is obviously, it's not effectively going to be westernized if that's not, I mean, that's completely the wrong word, but you know what I mean, for, for decades, if not centuries. Um, and Brazil's population is tiny. So in 1700, there are still only 300,000 people in the huge expanse of, of Brazil. And the cities and towns are just, I mean, they're just fly-bitten, shabby kind of trading posts. Wouldn't the word, I don't know, is, would it be Lusitanized, uh, Portuguesed? Uh, um, you know a lot more about this than me. But my understanding is that it's the discovery first of gold, which happens, what, kind of 1700? Yeah, late 17th century, yeah. And then diamonds. And that generates essentially the first gold rush. And you get yeah. lots and lots of people from Portugal suddenly thinking, you know, there's gold in then their jungles or hills or whatever. And and they, so they all go flooding across the Atlantic. 
And it's that process of settlement that that essentially introduces to Brazil, you know, it, it kind of beds down Portuguese language, Catholicism, all those kind of, you know, cultural trends, all that kind of stuff. So that to this day, Brazil is, it remains shaped by that huge influx. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so the sugar, there's obviously the sugar plantations that have been there already. Um, but you're right, there's the discovery of the gold, there's the gold mines in the state of Minas Gerais, which means general mines. Um, and I said the population of Brazil was about 300,000 in 1700. In 100 years, it, it increases tenfold. So it's about 3 million by 1800, um, which gives you some, I mean, it's still quite small, but it gives you that some sense of the sort of, of the, of the trend, I suppose. And I, th- I think, I mean, you said at the beginning that Portugal got its mojo back. And I, I mean, to some degree, obviously it has because it's independent and because all this gold is flowing in. But I think in other ways, Brazil is a great boon for the Portuguese and they come to rely on it. But it's also a kind of curse because they come to rely on it. So, you know, it's they can't kind of wean themselves off it. So the gold comes in, the sugar comes in, and they're making enormous profits from those things. But that means that they're not really building up their own domestic and and part of that is actually britain so they have signed a series of deals with the british most famously the methuen treaty of 1703 that we talked about at one of our 12 days of christmas podcasts about port about port and about port wine so that treaty basically i mean it's very much to britain's advantage because because basically the portuguese don't put any tariffs on british cloth and the british don't put any tariffs on Portuguese wine, but it's the cloth that is the boom. Yeah, it's the cloth that drives industry in the 18th century. Yeah, and and wine, you know, wine doesn't, and wine doesn't exactly. So, I mean, Portugal. There were about um, about three million people in Portugal by the mid 18th century, but it's very very agricultural. Um, there's only two cities worthy of the name, really, Lisbon and and Porto, which is and Porto is dominated by the sort of the export and import trade with Britain. So there's a sense, I think, in the mid-18th century that the image that Portugal had had 100 or 200 years before as one of the great shapers of globalization has kind of begun to fade by the mid-18th century. There's a sense, of, I think, of growing backwardness. Is, I mean, isn't there also a problem that um, the Portuguese royal family can, are entitled to a fifth of the gold that comes in? So yeah. it absolutely embeds colossal inequalities. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, you have, I suppose, you know, so many people are going across to Brazil that you're starting to lose a kind of working population in Portugal. I suppose there's so, a bit of a drain, yeah. And then actually, I, I mean, when you read about um, the English settlers, British settlers in Portugal, and we've been talking about this wonderful alliance and being very sentimental about it, but but essentially when you read about it, it, it it's pretty, it's a kind of neo-colonialism, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it is. Because yeah. They, they come to be known as the factory. Uh, the English trading community in Lisbon. And they have all these rights that are, are felt by many Portuguese to be humiliating because the British yeah. court, the, the British are Protestant. Um, and, and so they are a kind of standing offence to everything that the Inquisition represents, which is still going strong at this point. Um, so I think may, maybe saying that Portugal has got its mojo back was the wrong way. But it's, I mean, it's a kind of classic example, I suppose, of the way in which people talk about empire, you know, overseas possessions being a kind of curse. Yeah, in it's a way, a, it's a it's a very complicated picture, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I think it, I think it's reminiscent of countries like Argentina. So on the one hand, the Portuguese, you know, there are people who resent the English and who resent their sort of sense of colonial neo colonial dependency. And of course, at the same time, they admire the English. They see the English as the most modern, the most advanced, and a sort of a model. And the, the classic example of somebody like that is a guy who's best known as the um, the Marques de Pombal. So he's the defining Portuguese statesman of the of the mid 18th century. And we're going to come back now to eventually to Voltaire and his earthquake. So the Marques de Pombal is is he's born Sebastião José de Carvalho e Melo. I think it is. And he's born in 1699, is the son of a nobleman. He studies at the great Portuguese University of Coimbra, the great kind of medieval foundation, basically the only university in Portugal at that time. Uh, he elopes with a, a noblewoman. Isn't she Austrian? Yes, she's the niece of a Portuguese yeah. count. Um, and they go off and they run off and get married. But he's appointed as ambassador to Britain. And actually, he's in Britain for seven years, and he's a fellow of the Royal Society. And he's really interested. He sort of travels around 
looking at British industry and British science and yeah. and all these things. And he's sort of he has this great well, vision of a modernized, sort of anglicized, I suppose. But also a kind of enlightenment. He's a kind of militant, uh, yes, enlightenment figure, uh, kind of quite radical and quite brutal. So he he look he comes back and he becomes first minister, doesn't he? Um, yeah, and he launches this really very brutal attack on the nobility. So um, the the greatest nobleman in uh, in Portugal, the Duke of Aveiro, has his palace destroyed, um, and then very cool behaviour. He he sows the duke's garden with salt, which wow, is kind of very, very Assyrian uh, behaviour. Yes, um, and then there's this, this um, unfortunate Marquis, the Marquis of Tavora, who is literally broken on the wheel, and then um, his wife has her their children executed in front of her. Uh, and other members of the nobility are in prison for up to, to 20 years. So, I mean, this is kind of a, an assault on the nobility comparable to what yeah. happened in the French Revolution. And then there's an attack on the church. So he presides over the expulsion of the Jesuits, who were very much the kind of, you know, the, the cutting edge of, of uh, the Catholic church. Um, he he brings science and mathematics into the um, the curriculum at, at Coimbra. So basically he he tries to rein in the kind of the Inquisition and yes. effectively abolishes it. And he abolishes um, the racial discrimination that had previously existed between Jews who'd been forcibly converted. Because he's, he's aware, I think, that the expulsion of the Jews, which happened in the 17th century, 16th and 17th century, had been hugely to the disadvantage of Portugal. So, And they'd all gone to settle in, in Amsterdam. So the most famous uh, descendant of Portuguese Jews who settled in Amsterdam is Spinoza, the great philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's 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 outlawing that. He he's um so he's freeing the Jews from their disabilities and he's not doing this because he's a liberal. He's he's doing it basically because he wants to um to stop colonial uh, families in the new world from bringing their black slaves to Portugal, but he outlaws black slavery in Portugal. Yeah. So all of that is it's very enlightenment, but it's done with a, a fair measure of brutality. But what, of course, what he is not doing is abolishing slavery in the colonies, where, I, I mean, it's on an, an enormous scale, isn't it? It's on a scale that dwarfs the the, the plantations in the, the Caribbean or in North America. Yeah, you're right to bring this up, actually, Tom, uh, because it's so little known, I think, in the Anglo-Saxon world, where uh, I mean, the endless sort of conversations that we, we have about slavery and, and the involvement of Britain and the United States in the slave trade and so on. Um, but one thing we actually, as, you're, as you rightly say, we completely miss is that the, the Portuguese ship, I mean, nobody's exactly sure of the number, but it's between four and five million probably um, slaves to the New World. And to put that into context, the Portuguese ship to Brazil probably 10 times as many African slaves as are ever shipped to the United States of America. I mean, an astonishing figure. Um, and I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. We have a, quite a few Portuguese listeners, and I'd be interested to hear from them how much this is discussed and debated in Port. I mean, whether it's simply taken for granted and it's, you know, they have, as it were, come to terms with it, or whether they've even had the conversation, the, the arguments, the endless sort of arguments that people have in Britain. Um, about it and where do they flagellate themselves about it or that is say well it was all in the past i don't know but obviously slavery is the single most important thing in shaping modern brazil and the legacy of it is yeah. still there in brazil's racial politics today so yeah it's a fascinating story and one not often told but anyway the marcus de pombal i mean he's a whatever you you think of him individual policies he is i think it's fair to say isn't it tom by and large he is a remarkable man, impressive, I would say. Um, but as you said right at the beginning, coming right in the middle of his kind of tenure is that colossal, si yeah. well, literally seismic um, <laughs> disaster of the Lisbon earthquake, which, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not just an earthquake. It's all Saints Day. Isn't tsunami, it, isn't it, as well? It's an earthquake, a tsunami, and then a firestorm, which destroys the great majority of buildings in the in the city. It's a firestorm. It's a firestorm, isn't it? Because um, it's All Saints Day, and so everyone has gone to church and they've lit candles. And when the earthquake hits, everyone's in church. They all get crushed beneath the churches. The candles blaze, and the whole of Lisbon burns down. And it's it's that that particularly kind of raises eyebrows among among those who are religious and among the philosophers those who are skeptical. So that's where Voltaire is coming in. 
how could God allow this to happen? Yeah. Um, because at the time, you know, there's a real sense of enlightenment optimism, isn't there? The sort of, um, you know, everything is for the best. It's Leibniz. Is that Leibniz? Yeah. Um, everything, all is for the best in this best of possible worlds. Yeah. So in Condide, his, you know, Voltaire's famous kind of satire on on that kind of philosophical optimism, um, it's it's exemplified by the, 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 the figure of um, Pangloss, who is the supposedly the yeah. greatest philosopher in the Holy Roman Empire. And he accompanies Condide, and and they they get kind of involved in the um, in, in the earthquake. Pangloss <laughs> kind of surveying the the rubble and the fire and the the death and people screaming beneath the the kind of shattered fr- fabric of the, all these churches. And he says, "Oh, it's all you know. This is all for the best. Um, yeah. you know, if, if this didn't happen, there'd be a terrible volcano explode somewhere else." Um, and he Pangloss says this to a member of the Inquisition, and they get arrested, uh, accused of heresy. Um, Condide gets whipped. Pangloss gets hanged. Condide is just about to be uh, hanged himself when there's another earthquake and he manages to escape. And it's a kind of it's a very very brutal satire on the, this kind of notion that everything is all for the best, yeah. in the best of all possible worlds. I mean, the interesting thing is that the Marcus de Pombal he doesn't lose his enlightenment optimism. He uses the earthquake as an opportunity to rebuild Lisbon on very enlightenment sort of optimistic principles. Never let a crisis go to waste. No, he has this famous, apparently famous in Portugal anyway, this famous line where people are sort of, everyone's weeping and wailing and saying, what should we do? And he says, bury the dead and heal the living. He says it in exactly that very impressive way. Well, he hangs a lot of people as well. They put gallows up on the hills. Yeah, he hangs all the looters. But then he rebuilds the city. So if you've been to Lisbon, I mean, and we haven't really talked that much about Lisbon in these podcasts, but Lisbon, I think, is an absolutely spectacularly beautiful and stylish city. And you've got the sort of, on the one hand, you've got the castle and the kind of Moorish court of the Alfama, and it's all a higgledy-piggledy kind of, almost North African kind of warren of alleys. And then on the other hand side, you've got a, the Bairro Alto, the, the, the other high town on the other side, um, today very trendy kind of neighbourhood with bars and boutiques and stuff. And in between them, you have this kind of valley. And that was what was completely destroyed by the by the tsunami and the firestorm. So you were saying in the, the previous episode that we all, you know, Vasco da Gama and, and his gang, that we don't really know as much about them as we should. And that's presumably because everything, all the records got destroyed in the firestorm. Yeah, I think a lot of the records were destroyed. I mean, there were, and there were all the stories of paintings and things that were destroyed as well by Titian and Rubens and people like that. So a lot of that is destroyed. But Pombal turns that in i mean it's now it's called the baisha and if you go there it is a grid it is spectacularly beautiful very elegant these kind of gleaming mosaic pavements leading down to the waterfront and it's comparable to edinburgh or or any great enlightenment kind of project and um and because it's such a contrast with the rest of the city um, it makes it all the more all the more impressive and all the more striking but pombal falls doesn't he he does there's a new queen donna maria and she's very religious and of course, you were saying he was anti—he's he, not anti-clerical is the wrong word, maybe, but he's—he's um, he's certainly very skeptical of the Catholic Church's kind of privileges, and she can't stand that, and she basically boots him out within you know moments of becoming queen. But she also—I read um, online in my Bodleian, very close Bodleian research—she had a one of history's first restraining orders. It says, <laughs> uh, com, com, um, so that basically he wasn't allowed within 20 miles of her presence. And if she visited her estates, which were near his, he had to leave to his evacuate house. Evacuate them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then she goes mad, doesn't she? Um, a bit like she George does. III. Uh, so she, she has the same doctor. Um, what's oh, his name? She? Dr. Uh, Francis Willis. And he basically comes over and says, I can do nothing for her. But it's a kind and, of dementia or... Uh, no one knows. Could be porphyria, knows. could yeah. be manic depression, uh, could be... I mean, people at the time describe her as basically a religious maniac. Um, so this is a this is kind of um, emblematic of an escalating decline in Portugal's economy, uh, international standing that will hit absolute rock bottom um, with the, the Revolutionary Wars and, and the rise to power of Napoleon, which I think we should come to after a break. So when we do that, we will come to uh, the drama of the Peninsular War and the extraordinary evacuation from Portugal of the royal family. So we will come back with that. See you in a minute. Bye-bye. Hello. Welcome back uh, to the second half 
of the third episode in our epic history of Portugal. Um, and Dominic, we Tom. have reached the early 19th century. Um, and Dominic, Portugal, not in a good way, um, very much economically a bit on its uppers, um, but yeah. also more importantly, menaced by Napoleon, because of course, Portugal is the ally of Britain. Napoleon is trying to kick the British out of the continent. So in a way, Lisbon and Oporto are the two kind of entry points that the Royal Navy still have into what is otherwise fortress Europe. So uh, a huge crisis for Portugal because they basically have to choose between France and Britain and offending either one is, is obviously, you know, a nightmare. Yeah, they're, so they're stuck, really, the Portuguese. It's actually an issue. So in our fourth podcast, when we get to World War Two, it's, 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 it's a not dissimilar position, actually, that they they that they they have this alliance with Britain, but they they feel they are trapped by a sort of belligerent, sort of menacing neighbour in in this case, France. But I mean, it's worth saying, isn't it, that the reason why the alliance with Britain is so important is that Portugal's links t- to Brazil are absolutely crucial to it. And the Royal Navy can guarantee those links. But exactly. obviously the, the British don't have sufficient land forces, perhaps to keep Portugal defendable yeah. uh, from, from the French army. So so actually Napoleon has multiple, I mean, Napoleon very much not a friend, certainly not a friend of the rest is, of, of this rest is history presenter. And I think, I think you're a bit unsound on Napoleon, but we will, um, I, I have my suspicions, but we'll, we'll come back to that when we do. We do a big Napoleon series. I mean, God almighty, how many episodes are we going to do Napoleon? <laughs> um, we did the French Revolution in one, so maybe half. Well, we did Napoleon in Egypt, didn't we? So we, we, have, we have started on that. We did. So Napoleon has already, when the time the crisis really comes to Portugal, Napoleon has actually already basically um, threatened and browbeaten the Portuguese once with his ally Spain. So the Spanish had had led an, uh, armies into the north and south of Portugal. They had taken the town of Olivença. They had Napoleon had basically compelled the Portuguese to pay um, him an indemnity of twenty million francs and close some of its ports to the British. But he he what he comes back for more, and we're in eighteen oh seven, and his ambassador basically tells so Dona Maria because she's gone mad as kind of out of the picture. So her son. Dom Zhao is basically the the regent, and he's a bit ineffectual, isn't he? He is. He's sort of melancholy and and yeah, sort of self full of that self doubt, and he's not a great leader of men. I think it's fair to say. Um, and the French basically say to him, "You have to recall your ambassador from London, break diplomatic relations with Britain, close the ports of British ships, arrest all the Brits in Lisbon, confiscate their property, and you you, you know you've got weeks to make up your mind." And Dom Zhao. I mean, he's he's a great character. He's he lives in this palace in Mafra, and um, he's got this huge library, and he's surrounded by all these books, and um, and monks. And the library is infested with insects, so the monks maintain a, a sort of menagerie, if that's the word, of bats, mm-hmm. which they use to deal with the insects <laughs> in Dom Zhao's library. So I mean, he's like he's like Batman sitting in the yeah. middle of sort of Wayne Manor. Yeah. Um, yeah, very sort of miserable figure. And he asks the British what he should do. And the British basically say, what you have to do is this. We will take you to Brazil. You know, you will flee. We'll take your entire royal household to Brazil. But you must open all the ports in Brazil to British goods. So basically allow us to control the trade um, with Brazil. Um, and he doesn't like that. So he plays for time. The British actually, I mean, again, I'm not convinced that the British come out of this quite as well as we might like to think, because they basically say, listen, if you don't do this, um, we will consider that an act of war and uh, we will bombard Lisbon ourselves. So you have to choose between us and the French and you have to choose us or we'll attack you. Yeah. I mean, so my rosy sense of this this alliance is I'm I'm, I'm finding it rather upsetting having to... (laughs) having to well, to face how perfidious Albion. But now we do come out well, Tom, because we send a splendid fellow to um to, do, yes. to, to Lisbon. So he's called Sir Sidney Smith, the Lion of the Sea. Friend of the show. Because he's the one who um he was in our episode on Napoleon in Egypt. So remind me, Tom, what was he doing in that? Siege of Acre. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. And yeah. uh he, he, he sees Napoleon off and Napoleon says this is the man who cost me my destiny. 
So in another, um, he's a very, I mean, I know you won't like this because we mentioned in previous podcasts that you don't like this. You don't like rope, you don't like naval technology, and you don't like the novels of Patrick O'Brien. But Sir Sidney Smith strikes me as a very Jack Aubrey figure because like Jack Aubrey, he's imprisoned um, and he's imprisoned by the French for two years for being a spy, which as mm-hmm. if you would know, if you had read Patrick O'Brien's books, Tom, you would know. It's not fun. It's not fun, but it's also, but it, but it's very rousing. It makes you proud to be British that somebody would, <laughs> you know, hold out in such a way and then come back and rescue the Portuguese royal family, which is precisely and called the Lion of the Sea. Right. So yeah. November 1807, the French are, are basically moving in on Portugal. The Portuguese royal family make it in their minds. All right, we'll go. And there's this amazing scene. So there's a brilliant book, actually. Um, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a very obscure subject, but honestly, it's a brilliant book. It's a, a book about Brazil by Eloisa Starling and Lilia Moritz Schwartz, which I wrote about in the Sunday Times a few years ago, called Brazil, A Biography. And um, they have this amazing set piece where they basically say, you know, it's like a scene from Dante's Inferno. All these huge mobs of people kind of swarming down to the docks in Lisbon. I mean, just thousands upon thousands of people preparing for the voyage to Brazil. So kind of maids and servants and courtiers and noblemen, basically anybody who is anybody. And Donna Maria, right? And Donna Maria, who's been, because she's, of course, mad. She's screaming and sobbing because she she thinks thinks she's been kidnapped. kidnapped. (laughs) Yes. So she's been taken down in her carriage. It's an absolutely risible kind of chaotic scene. I mean, as they say in their book, it's not just a case of the royal family. It's the families of ministers, of councillors, of nobility, of the court, of civil servants. It's the entire administrative machine, the government offices, the secretariats, the law courts, the archives, the treasure, the government employees. Do they take an orchestra? Like um, They take everything. Like the, like the last uh, emperor of Mexico. I think they take dinner, dinner services and they take yeah. wardrobes and they take – because they're basically moving the entire – in their minds, they're moving Portugal. You know the how the royal family, the sort of symbol of Portugal, across the Atlantic to Brazil to about fifteen fifteen thousand people. They did what what the British royal family didn't do in the Second World War. Exactly, because there was kind of talk of them going to Canada, wasn't there? But I don't think if they had gone to Canada, I like to think now maybe this is me just flattering my, uh, uh, myself and my country. But I, I find it hard to believe that in nineteen forty there would have been fifteen thousand people, you know, shouting and that. You know, well, they'd have to take all the footmen and the horses. And would they have taken the footmen? I, I mean, maybe know. they would. I don't know. It's a, I don't know. I kind of imagine they'd have done it more discreetly in a more tweedy way. Uh, <laughs> yes. Do you not think? Yes. George the Sixth. Yeah, probably. Um, but anyway, they get on these ships. Um, the British are escorting them. There are no beds. Uh, the crew is too small. Um, what's it? So this is from that Brazil biography. It says. Um, the water, all the water was reserved for drinking, and even the ships that conducted the Prince Regent, the Queen, and the Princes were disgraceful and stank like pigsties. The ladies' hair became infested by fleas, obliging them to shave their heads. Thus the journey dragged on, monotonous, interminable. Apart from the distractions of watching the sails being hoisted and singing to guitars at sunset and on moonlit nights, there was nothing to do but play cards. And they're just doing this for weeks. When they arrive in Brazil, all the ladies of the court are bald. They must be all shaven-headed anyway. Wow. Yeah. That's quite, I mean, what a, what a spectacle. But then the spectacle is incredible because they get off. They've never been. They have never been. No European royal has ever been to the New World. So they get off the ships and um, they arrive in Salvador, which is then, I think, effectively the capital of Brazil. And that's the great slave port, isn't it? It's a great slave port. So it's, it, it, it is it is this this huge slave market there's basically a glorified slave market and they get off it is filthy there are people crowding around there's rubbish in the streets it's muddy um they just there there are strange plants and animals and all this sort of stuff and you know for them it's and it is the the culture shock of culture shocks and meanwhile because they've opened brazil as part of the deal to british manufacturers other ships are unloading these bizarre products that the the, the British yeah. are forcing the yes, Brazilians. So ice skates, <laughs> yeah. ladies' shark fin corsets, warming pans, <laughs> thick woolen blankets, and mathematical instruments. So all these things that are being made in, I don't know, Barnsley or something, are being shipped over and the, the, so the Brazilians have been forced to buy them. Oh, brilliant. A woolen blanket. Just what I want. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so so that, that's the scene in Brazil. Meanwhile, back in Portugal, high drama, because of course the French are moving against Portugal and the British need to defend what is their bridgehead. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so they send one of their top generals, don't they? Uh, Sir Arthur Wellesley, who... Do you know, is this, is this his first appearance on The Rest is History? I think it might be, because of course Sir Arthur Wellesley will go on to become the Duke of Wellington. But this is really where he's he's been uh, he's been a general in India, hasn't he, and done great stuff there. But yeah, uh, this is really his 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 first experience of campaigning on the continent, and he he does very well. So he, he does apparently, um, Tom. He so defeats the French. Uh, he he signs the Convention of Sintra. The French evacuate Portugal. Uh, they then invade again. Typical perfidious French behaviour. Uh, again, Wellesley defeats them. That's when he is ennobled. That's what he's made the Duke of Wellington for kicking the French out for a second time in 1809, I think it is. So we can start calling him Wellington now. We can. So so he invades Spain, doesn't he? And he wins this great victory at Talavera, which is, uh, I mean, almost near Madrid, I think. Uh, but then he realises that he's massively outnumbered. And so he, he, he withdraws and he focuses, uh, rather than kind of taking the attack to the French in Spain, on absolutely securing Lisbon. Because he yeah. knows that the French are going to make another attack, and so these are the famous lines of Torres Vedras, which are built over the course of eighteen oh nine to ten. One hundred and fifty-two forts, I think it is, and they're built using. I mean, the Portuguese are basically press ganged into building these forts, and it's real scorched earth policy. So actually, Portugal is a is a sort of battle scarred wasteland. Well, it's the Belgium. Yeah, absolutely, it is. Yeah, I mean. You know, sort of cannons are blasted, kind of craters out of the earth, and all that sort of thing. And they're built on a huge scale, aren't they? I mean, the, the lines of Torres Vedras. If you look at the pictures, that I mean, the, the forts are they're pretty sizable. I mean, they're pretty chunky forts. Um, I mean, who knows? The Portuguese, I think, become increasingly francophobic as to, as the war goes on. I mean, as you would expect, you've been invaded three times in in three years, basically. So, of course, any sense of sort of that the, the French might be their republican liberators from the old regime has pretty much evaporated. Mm. I would say, as in Spain as well. Yeah, as it does in Spain as well. So, the Peninsular War. I mean, a lot of the main, the sort of major action takes place in Spain. And it's a very confused and sort of bloody story. Well, we should do we should do an episode on that, shouldn't we? But I mean, from the point of view of this of this um, of Portugal, yeah, there is one last attempt by the French to, to capture Lisbon, and that's under basically one you know one of the best marshals there is, Massena, um, who's Napoleon rates very very highly, but he can't break through, and so the lines of Torres Vedras hold, and basically that that ensures that Portugal will yes. will escape French conquest, and it ensures that the British will maintain their bridgehead. Which is exactly. absolutely yeah. crucial. So yeah, um, so that's all going on. So you've now got you know Portugal and Brazil, r- rather than Portugal being the colonial power and Brazil a colony. I mean, Brazil is starting to basically become the the the, the kind of the centre of this United Kingdom. It is. It's such an extraordinary story, and there's no. I can't think of a comparison anywhere in the world. I mean, maybe listeners will be able to think of one where the the metropole basically moves to the colony. And that ends up almost becoming the metropole. So what's basically happened, Portugal and Brazil, their populations are, I guess, roughly equivalent um, in the turn of the 19th century. But the royal family have moved to Brazil. And when the war with Napoleon is over, Dom João, he doesn't come straight back to Portugal. He stays in Brazil and Rio and he elevates Brazil. So the kingdom is now called the United Kingdom of Portugal, Brazil and the Algarves. So what are the Algarves? I thought there was just one. Well, I think maybe some islands are included in oh, the okay. Algarves. It's a bit okay. like the the multiple Sicil- the two Sicilies. Or right. <laughs> okay. I think it always sounds better if you have a plural. Have, yes, it does. Yes. Doesn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I once had a, um, a children's history, a very old-fashioned children's history book, which said that there were multiple Britons, which yeah. is why well, ours was called Great Britain. Well, said so there were three Britons. Do you know what they were? Uh, la, 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 la. Canada? Yeah, so it was Britain, Brittany, and the wider Britain beyond the seas. Yeah. Yeah. Very inspirational. Anyway, um, Dom Zhao doesn't want to come home, and the Portuguese. And he doesn't want the, to take his coat off, does he? He, he does. refuses to take his coat off. And yes. so he, That's a he very important kind of, point. He kind of rips it on a fork or something, and so his, his chamberlains have to go and sew it up while he's asleep. So he's clearly not entirely on top of things yeah, by this point. Yeah, his, his several 
forks short of a cullery drawer or whatever. Yes. <laughs> the, um, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> meanwhile, in Portugal, so the Portuguese are obviously gutted that the royal family has gone to Brazil and won't come home, but also they've sort of lost their status in the in yeah. their own empire. <laughs> and yeah, there's a there's a sort of depression at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. There were harvest failures, you know, as we know, we've talked before about the sort of climatic conditions of the early 19th century, sort of year without a summer or whatever it is and all this stuff. Um, they Their currency is in sort of meltdown. They've got high inflation. They basically say the Brazilians don't care about us. They don't send us anything. And there's this increasing, increasing ferment, this sort of liberal ferment where they say that, you know, the royal family should come back to Portugal and they should swear a constitution that basically will, first of all, will give sort of liberal elites more power. So part of that liberal constitutionalism of the 19th century. But also, we absolutely want it to be clear that we're the top dogs, not the Brazilians. The return of the king. That's what they want. They want the return of the king. And, and you know, the, the big people in this, so a very big thing in this is Freemasonry. So, oh, then always up to no good. Well, Masonic societies are very big among the sort of Portuguese enlightened sort of upper classes and middle classes. Um, so they're agitating for all this. And basically they demand that Zhao comes back, which he does in April 1821. Still wearing he's, his coat. He's still wearing his coat. He's absolutely <laughs> gutted. He wanted to stay in Brazil because basically in Brazil, he's got everything as kind of as he wants it. If he goes back to Europe, it's the home of revolution. Europe is the home of political ferment and turbulence yeah. and you know, he'll be pushed around by all these Portuguese bigwigs. He doesn't want that. He's so sad, apparently, that he can't speak. When he, But before he's lost the ability to speak, he says to his son, Pedro, you stay in Brazil as regent in Brazil. And basically, if they tell you to come back, if they try to take Brazil from you, you should you should declare independence or something. I mean, he's completely upfront about this. Xiao comes back. He's, the Portuguese browbeat him into this new constitution. He has to swear an oath of loyalty to the constitution. His wife refuses, so she's kind of stripped of her royal privileges. But now the Portuguese go further and they say, your son is still in Brazil. He needs to come back to Portugal as well. And he, this business of him being regent in Brazil is rubbish. You know, we're the, yeah, he needs to scrap all that. The Brazilian, Brazilian masons, actually, are very anti this. And they say, no, no, no. They invest him in Brazil with the title Defender of Brazil, Dom Pedro. Dom Pedro is a slightly useless man as well. He's been very highly educated, but he's everybody says he can't focus. He's always having affairs with people. He's sort of badly behaved. Um, and it, it basically all comes to a head in the late summer of 1822. The Portuguese say, you know, this is an absolute ultimatum. You have, Pedro has to come back to portugal pedro unfortunately has chronic diarrhea um so he's he's not cutting a very glamorous figure but no. nevertheless he gives this rousing speech um in between sort of running <laughs> rushing off the, the toilet <laughs> yeah. um in which he says independence or death and all this which is generally what <laughs> oh tom i can't believe you did a sound effect on the, the your first sound effect on the rest yeah. of history well and it was that. everything and what i want to do uh, uh so <laughs> he gives the speech he says independence or death which i think that all latin american people say when they're declaring independence i think that's um, the law isn't it yeah by un convention yeah. you have to say independence or death and they get independence because of course there's not really anything the portuguese yeah so what, what, can, what they can't do anything no, they haven't got. It's not like they've got a navy and an army that they can really use to crush the Brazilians. What's the What's the attitude of the British to this? Because presumably their attitude really matters because they control the shipping lanes that enable Portugal and yeah. Brazil to communicate with each other. So really, the British the British act as mediators, and the British don't care whether the Portuguese run Brazil or not. What they want to do is to ensure their own commercial dominance in both places. <laughs> so they can sell all their woolen blankets and their yes, exactly. corsets and <laughs> ice skates. Um, <laughs> but interestingly, um, for people who think that the British have not always behaved with distinction in the course of this today's podcast, one of the sort of quid pro quos for the British agreeing that they will, I mean, the British basically mediate and they persuade the Portuguese to give Brazil their independence, to recognize Brazilian independence. One of the quid pro quos is that the British... This is the heyday, really. I mean, abolitionism in Britain, the early 19th century. And they say, we want you to, to scrap slave trafficking. 
not necessarily abolish slavery within Brazil, but stop the slave trade. And the Brazilians, in a sort of very roundabout way, they kind of agree. So in 1831, they agree to a law that says basically when slaves arrive in Brazil, they will be considered free. And they completely and utterly ignore it. So it's a yeah. complete fiction and a fraud. And is there a, a famous Portuguese phrase that sums this up? You're and, reading and... the notes. You're reading ahead. <laughs> there is. It's uma lei para inglês ver, a law for the British to see, which basically in Brazilian yeah. Portuguese means a dressing con, it up. Uh, dressing yeah. it up, yeah. Um, and actually, it's not until 1888 that slavery is abolished in Brazil. And since we're, I, I know we're running out of time, so I will just say this is Brazil. Brazil now vanishes from Portuguese history because it's on its own. But, Tom, we will be returning to Brazil, which is a, a country whose history is almost entirely unknown, certainly in Britain, but probably in the English-speaking world more generally. We'll be returning to what happens to Brazil because Brazil obviously becomes an empire under Dom Pedro and his successors. So we'll be returning to the Brazilian empire and the abolition of slavery in Brazil and the downfall of the Brazilian empire in a future podcast, won't we? Because we're going to be doing some very exciting podcasts in the autumn. Yes, we've got a mass part of a massive, very, very exciting plan that we've got coming that we will talk about. Top secret. Unless you're a Wang, they already know. But Yeah. uh, yeah, something I hope that definitely to look forward to okay so i think we should um we should stop at this point and we have everything is set up now for the fourth and concluding part of our epic history of portugal the absolute climax and i know dominic that this is an episode you've been hugely looking forward to because you are a huge um fado fan aren't you fado music and and tom is going to be singing i will be singing (laughs) well i i might hum along um, and uh, the extraordinary figure of Salazar, the 20th century Portuguese dictator. Dictator, uh, yes, it's very extraordinary exciting. figure. So Tolkien, Tolkien only did three in his Lord of the Rings trilogy, Tom, but we have gone one better because we have done four in this mighty series. A tetralogy. Which people so, are already calling the Lord of the Rings of history podcasts, aren't they? Yeah, Are I'm they sure calling they that? Are. Have you heard people calling them? I'm sure I, they I mean, are. I'm sure I they are. I believe they are. Uh, right. So we will we will see you tomorrow. Um, thanks very much for listening, uh, and um, do come back for Portugal in the twentieth century. Bye bye. Adeus. Thanks for listening to the rest is history. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com that's restishistorypod.com hi rest is history fans if you want more tom holland in your life and frankly why wouldn't you i have some good news for you i'm emily dean and i'm thrilled to say that this week tom is a guest on my podcast walking the dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because i talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog raymond And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.